Okay. So some bio again. Sorry, I don't have slides. Now what's happening? Now what are you doing? Why are we on the announcement? Whatever you want. There. Okay. Anyway. All right, some bio stuff. He was born December 27th, 1714 in Gloucester, England. Gloucester. 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 There's probably a British way of saying that. Gloucester, England. And he died September 30th, 1770 in Massachusetts, USA, at the age of 55. One day after his final sermon. So Not USA. Was it Massachusetts? No, Massachusetts wasn't USA. Oh. <laughs> it was the colony of Massachusetts. <laughs> he was best known as a preacher. In case you didn't know, he was one of the founders of Methodism, and he was one of the founders of Evangelicalism. Whoa. And he was one of the first people to start the first Great Awakening in the United States. As far as some background stuff, um, he was the fifth son of Thomas and Elizabeth, he had a passion and a talent for theater and drama. He went to university, and he was part of the Holiness Club with John and Charles Wesley. So they were like his roommates, even though they had very, very different theological views. He was converted, and he was ordained a deacon in the Church of England. He was married, but not necessarily for love or attraction. He quite simply said, I believe it's God's will that I should marry and so he decided to get married. He proposed to a woman by letter, and she rejected his proposal. And if you will listen to his proposal, you will find out why she probably rejected his proposal. Wendy's already giggling. She's always... Oh, I miss this part, honestly. Oh. Uh, he says to her, this first woman, Elizabeth Delmont, in uh, 1740, this is how they did it. I guess this was Tinder or... Bumble, or whatever it was in 1740. You need not be afraid of sending me a refusal, for I, bless God, if I know anything of my own heart, I am free from that foolish passion in which the world calls love. The passionate expressions, this is his proposal, the passionate expressions which carnal courts use, I think, ought to be avoided by those who would marry in the Lord. I trust I love you only for God and desire to be joined to you only by his command and for his sake. I mean, I don't know why she didn't say yes to that. <laughs> That's funny. I said the same thing to Rhoda, and she still said yes. She said yeah. That, for Rhoda, that might have worked. Yeah, but I was too blind to tell which one was the yes, no, I'm afraid <laughs> she, she was swiping, and I don't know. I hope that was the good one. He eventually did marry again, but seemingly uh, not out of attraction. He said... Uh, simply to a letter to a friend, about 11 weeks ago I married, in the fear of God, one who was a widow, about 36 of age, and has been a housekeeper for many years. <clears throat> it gets better. Neither rich in fortune nor beautiful as to her person, but I believe a true child of God. Uh-oh. Yeah, so I took a wife, and she's not rich, and she's not pretty. But evidently she's a child of God. So that's the reason why he got married. the old song. What? You want to be happy for the rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> she, um, yeah, they were married for 27 years after that. 
They uh, did have one child, but unfortunately that child died in infancy since she had four miscarriages after that. So they basically gave up after that. So they really had no children. And after she died, uh, he basically turned around and went back to America, no less than two weeks later, to get back to the preaching circuit. So he did a lot of traveling to America. Uh, he departed for England, or it's departed, departed England for Savannah, Georgia in 1738. He raised money for the care of the orphans in the new colonies, and he would then crisscross the Atlantic many, many times, getting back and forth. So as far as his conversion, we do have a little bit of a conversion story. In 1735, already part of the Holy Club at Oxford, he said the pursuit of God was legalistic. And we, can, and we have a little bit of a window into what his pursuit of God looked like at Oxford. Definitely not what I would say a warm, uh, sort of passionate pursuit of God. He said, I always chose the worst sort of food. I fasted twice a week. My apparel was mean. I wore woolen gloves, a patched gown, and dirty shoes. I constantly walked out in the cold mornings till part of my hands was quite black. I could scarcely creep upstairs. I was obliged to inform my kind tutor, who immediately sent a physician for me. And he thought this was all part of asceticism and following the Lord in, in meagerness. And so he was trying to basically earn his way to salvation. But he was unconverted, even though he may have been a professing Christian. He then got a copy of the book, The Life of God and the Soul of Men, by Henry Skugel, which I looked on Google and it, on Amazon, and it is free on Kindle. So just in case you wanted to read the book that converted George Whitfield, you can do so for free on Kindle. So he wrote this, he wrote this about the book. I must bear my testimony to my old friend, Mr. Charles Wesley. He put a book into my hands called The Life of God and the Soul of Man, whereby God showed me that I must be born again or be damned. I know the place, it may be superstitious, perhaps, but wherever I go to Oxford, I cannot help but run into that place where Jesus Christ first revealed himself to me and gave me the new birth. The author says, a man may go to church, say his prayers, receive the sacrament, and yet, my brethren, not be a Christian. How did my heart rise? How did my heart shudder like a poor man that is afraid to look into his account, lest he should find himself bankrupt? Yet I shall burn that book and throw it down. Shall I put it by or sell it or shall I search into it? I did. And holding the book in my hand, thus addressed the God of heaven and earth. Lord, if I am not a Christian, if I am not a real one, for Jesus Christ's sake, show me what Christianity is, that I may not be damned at last. I read a little further, and the cheat was discovered, that they that know anything of religion know it is vital, a vital union with the Son of God. Christ formed in my heart. Oh, what a way of divine life did break upon my poor soul. With what joy unspeakable, even joy that was full of, big with glory, was my soul filled. So he read some things in that book that jumped out at him, and that's what the Lord used indeed to, uh, to open his heart to the true understanding of the gospel. Um, yeah, so some observations maybe we can stop and pause on that you know he was a member of the holy club for crying out loud like if you're in the holy club don't you have to be a christian the holy club i would imagine would be a club that is 
uh, devoted to holiness and behavior. And so outward legalism, things protesting immoral behavior, separating themselves. Didn't the Wesley start that at Oxford? Probably. Sounds like something that we do. Yeah, because it was the whole Methodist concept that there is a set of, there's a method in how you worship. Yeah. Is the whole idea behind it. So the holiness. Thank you, Rhoda. You're very welcome. (laughs) So when they got to Oxford, they took Mama Wesley's regimented style of how you act holy as a Christian, and they forced it like it's a club to teach people how to be holy, um, which is why asceticism naturally followed. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Life by the book. I mean, what about this? I mean, did you see, um, if you notice, here, there's more, actually, one part I wanted to read on 669, so that sets the tone. Um, This is what happened after he was converted. Above all, my mind now being more opened and enlarged, I began to read the Holy Scriptures upon my needs, knees, laying aside all other books and praying over, if possible, every line and word. This proved meat indeed and drink indeed to my soul. I received fresh life, light, and power from above. I got more true knowledge from reading the book of God in one month than I ever could have acquired from all the writings of men. So what happened after he was converted? What did he experience? Joy. Joy. Yeah, definitely that joy. He said it overflowed his soul. What about some of the stuff I just read <laughs> moments ago? What, what, what did he start doing? An appetite to read the Bible. Yeah. He had an appetite to do the things of a Christian, right? to pray, to read the Bible. And he says it was like, you know, remember those times you're reading the Bible? It just seems to jump off the page and hit you in the forehead. Those moments, that's what he's talking about. So spiritual appetites change upon conversion. I don't know if anybody else noticed that. When you became a Christian, your spiritual appetites changed. You wanted to read the Bible. You wanted to go to church. You wanted to hang out with other Christians. Those things are supposed to happen. <laughs> so, what about us? Can we be in the holy club and not be real, actual Christians? Can we go to Highlands Bible Church and not be real, actual Christians? Yes. Can we even profess to be Christians and not be, yeah, sure, I'm, I'm a Christian. What's the difference then between a professing Christian, you would say, or, or someone that actually has saving faith? What are some of the things we would notice? Fruit. 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 Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, the fruit of what he was talking about there, reading the Bible, praying. Uh, we'll see doing good deeds, of course, preaching, which he spent many, many hours doing. So, yeah, actually at that time, there were many pastors that were supposedly pastors and unsaved as well. And people thought that was okay, because they were just kind of doing a job. But how would we define true religion? That was the spirit of the book that really converted him, uh, life of God and the soul of man. The, the topic was true religion. How would you define true religion? Not the band or the genes, but the term. What's true religion? I would think it'd be better explained by a true relationship rather than okay. a true religion. Okay. So a relationship with God, a yeah. dynamic, alive, thriving relationship with God. Okay, good. What other things come to mind when we think of true religion, defining true religion? 
Isn't it defined in the Bible as like caring for widows and orphans? Yep. In James, absolutely. Religion that is good is this, undefiled. right? Mm-hmm. Undefiled, caring for widows and orphans. Yep, definitely. The author of that book that the Lord used to convert George Whitfield said it means something like authentic spirituality or genuine Christianity. He is at pains to defend the term from common misconceptions among Christians. I cannot speak of religion, he writes, <clears throat> but I must lament that. Among so many pretenders to it, so few understand what it means. So already, there, you could see these were the kind of words that stirred Whitfield's heart in, in conviction because he was one of those pretenders. So as he's reading this word, these words, he's getting convicted that his religion is not in fact true and he's not actually a Christian. The author said that true religion doesn't reside in three places. So you won't find, tr- you won't find true religion here. You won't find it in theological correctness, you won't find it in moralism, and you won't find it in affections. Think about those three things for a minute. Again, these were the things that Whitfield was reading. You won't find true religion in theological correctness. Let me think about that. Is that true? Do you agree? Do you not agree? What, like just following the rules? Just, well, it could be. Could, is that what that means? Yeah, or maybe knowing, right? Knowing. Being a doctrinal nerd. Yeah, right? I mean, I think you can know and study theology and about God, but not have that head-to-heart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the Pharisees... In your heart. Exactly. The Pharisees and the Sadducees yeah. had all the knowledge. They were theological masters of the Old right, Covenant. Right, but but it, it, it stuck in the head, never, never transformed to the heart. Yeah. So just because we might know all the doctrines, right? We might even be a biblical expert intellectually, right? But the author said that that's not true religion. He also said it's not found in moralism. What's moralism? Well, there's good people that aren't Christians. Yeah. 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 Gooders. Just being gooders. Good. Just being good. Being the nice guy. Doing good deeds. Helping old ladies across the street. All of that stuff. That's not true religion either. I think pure moralism leads to the necessity of relevance in it. So what's good for one can't be always good for the other. Yep. So yeah, because no then it's an open definition. It. Yeah. yeah. And third, he said, it's not found in the affections. Hmm. Or emotions, I guess we could say. What do you think about that? Do we agree with that? The heart is deceitful above all things. And we are capable of being very affected to very bad things. But Ron played a song and I cried. It must have been Jesus. Or it must have been bad. (laughs) (laughs) And we see this today, right? We see whole churches that are designed to stir the affections with smoke and lasers and lights and music and graphics and video walls. And And emotions don't last. No, Mm -hmm. emotions don't last. So I think what the author is saying is that it's not exclusively in those things, right? You can't define true religion as just theological correctness, or you can't define it as just moralism, doing good things, and you certainly can't define it as just having affections and emotion for God. Although, you will have elements of those things, right, in true religion. You will certainly have theological correctness, you'll certainly have affections, you'll certainly have good deeds, but why, right? We get to the why. We need, we need the source of it all, which, of course, that dynamic relationship with Christ, right? So 
just thought I'd take a little cruise through the book that uh, converted uh, George Whitefield and what he was reading there. But of course, he was best known as a preacher. Conservative estimates report that he preached upwards of 1,000 times a year for 30 years. A little over 18,000 sermons and 12,000 other talks. I always think that would be like me doing a chapel at Northwest or <laughs> doing a camp talk somewhere, right? Wait, 1,000 a, a year? Yep. would be like three sermons a day? Sometimes. Yeah, Sometimes day. more. Sometimes more on Sundays. It's insane. Literally all he did was preach. They also said he had a powerful voice because he had yep. a background. Yes. So he could project his voice so more people could listen to him outside yep. than normal. People. Yep. One person said, Who would think it possible that a person should speak in the compass of a single week and that for years, in general, 40 hours, and in very many, 60, and to thousands, and after his labor, instead of taking any rest, should be offering up prayers and intercessions with hymns and spiritual songs as his manner was in every house in which he was invited. So he'd preach multiple times a day for extended periods of time to a crowds of people. And when he got to the house that was hosting him, he would continue to pray, sing spiritual songs, and exhort and encourage those people that were there. He did not rest very much at all. How long were his sermons? Not sure. <laughs> probably weren't 15 minutes um, I bet an hour maybe more wow sure he spoke to crowds in the thousands usually from you know six to eight thousand people no PAs no microphones one report said that he spoke to a crowd of 20,000 people his voice famously resonated, and one report was that his sermon was heard two miles away because he was uh, over a river in Boston, and the sound traveled down the river, and they heard echoes of him preaching two miles away. And again, you know, that uh, drama and theater background, he knew how to use his voice like an instrument. He projected it and, and controlled it. He traveled extensively as an uh, iterant preacher internationally of course in an age where travel itself was very very difficult he crossed the Atlantic 13 times he visited America seven times and we talked about why that was before he came in because he passed away so he didn't actually complete the even number so one time when he was visiting America was his last time one biographer referred to his life as one continuous or scarcely interrupted sermon J.C. Ryle said, No preacher has ever retained his, whole, his hold on his hearer so entirely as he did for 34 years. His popularity never waned. And in 1740, he preached a series of revivals known as the start of the First Great Awakening. Estimates at that time were that 80% of the American colonies heard him preach at least once. He was flamboyant. He was eloquent. He was theatrical. He was dubbed America's first celebrity. We weren't even a nation yet, and we had celebrities, and he was one of them, right? But his style, he chose certain words, phrases, cadences. He told stories. He was a master storyteller. His facial expressions were all involved. 
He was appreciated even by those who didn't believe one of his best friends was Benjamin Franklin. And Benjamin Franklin thought he was just a master at his craft, but Benjamin Franklin didn't believe what he was preaching, but he loved to go see his friend George Whitfield preach. Uh, Benjamin Franklin said, every accent, every emphasis, every modulation of voice was so perfectly well-turned and well-placed that without being interested in the subject, one could not help by being pleased with the discourse, a pleasure as much of the same kind that we receive from an excellent piece of music. So how many people like went to just hear him preach? Just the dynamics of his voice and what he was saying and the beauty of it. Sure, it was almost like entertainment. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. He also deeply inspired other preachers like Jonathan Edwards, who he was friends with, who we'll get to in a couple weeks. Edwards was very cautious, though, about his flamboyance and his uh, use of theater and some other things, so he was a little cautious about that. And Whitfield took some controversy for that. People thought he was, you know, he was an ex-actor from uh, the theater and from the stage, so they're like, that's what he's doing. He's just putting on a show. And so he took some flack for that. I assume he wasn't expository preaching the word. Well, I haven't listened to enough of his sermons, but he, as we'll see in a minute, he was very doctrinally precise. <coughs> so he seems to have mixed both the drama and the flamboyance and all of that with doctrinal precision. He was, very, uh, he was a raging Calvinist, so he was very anchored in the sovereignty of God, all of those things. So I'm not entirely sure how expositional it was, but it was certainly doctrinally grounded. Um, so do you think his style discredited him because it was so different from that? I day? think with certain audiences, sure. Yeah. I think a lot of people were just enthralled by it. Well, I think he, the Lord used him. Oh, I'm sure it did. To convert I mean, a lot of people. A lot of people heard the gospel. Yeah. The Great Awakening happened in Europe first before it came to America. Uh, that I'm not sure, but. Oh, you got the Wesleys being announced for North America would be right a little bit before that, say yeah. 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 I mean, he was a British preacher who came over, so. But it certainly, as far as the colonies here, it certainly took off. I was just first and second. He was responsible for the Great Awakening in Europe and in the, the colonies. He, um, that I don't know, but he defended himself as far as against some of these accusations. And here's a quote from him. He said, I'll tell you a story. The Archbishop of Canterbury in the year 1675 was acquainted with an actor. And one day the Archbishop said to the actor, Pray to inform me, what is the reason that actors on stage can affect your congregations with speaking of things that are imaginary as if they're real, while we in church think or speak of things that are real, which our congregations only receive as if they were imaginary? Why, my lord, said the actor, the reason is very plain. We actors on stage speak of things imaginary as if they were real. You in the pulpit speak of things real as if they were imaginary. And so that idea that just, he was like, no, we're actually talking about things that are real here. And why would I not speak of them in a real passionate and real energetic and, and a real way? That was completely different than what other preachers were doing right now. They would head down, they would read their full manuscript, 
for probably like an hour in a monotonous tone of voice and everybody would fall asleep. And so when a guy like Whitfield goes on stage with no notes and is completely dynamic and all of these theatrics and vocal expressions and storytelling and all just blew people's minds. But Whitfield resolved one of his famous quotes was, I will not be a velvet-mouthed preacher, meaning that I'm not just going to speak things that are just empty sugar water. He's talking about things that are real. And so he was very, very passionate about it, and he did defend himself. And of course, nevertheless, he still fought pride because he was America's first celebrity. Everybody basically knew who he was. But his ordeal was that he preached the gospel, and he preached it with passion because he thought it was real. Uh, Piper says, this was not repressed acting. This was a released acting. It was not acting in the service of imagination. It was imaginative acting in the service of reality. The gospel's reality. So. Sounded like he had the gift of application. I think so. He certainly had the gift of connecting with an audience. Yeah. And he was known again for combining that dramatic precision with doctrinal um, precision. In that sense of he talked about election. He talked about justification. He talked about all of those things. And he talked about them very, very well. Do we have any of his sermons? Oh, yeah, we have. Lots of them? There are a fair amount of them. Yeah. Audible? No, no. Written Written. It was before the revolution. Yeah, I'm thinking, what? Nope. They're all written. They're all scribed. They're all written, but if you go on YouTube, you can find guys with British accents reading them. (laughs) So, yeah. So someone had to scribe all them unless he wrote them. Are there, are there original manuscripts of, of his sermons? I think so. I think wow. there are, yeah. yeah. I'm sure they were published as well and wow. sent around. Something yeah. about yeah, flyers. Yeah, he, he published flyers. Yeah, he was definitely, he used a lot of things that people were not comfortable with. Uh, like marketing techniques, <laughs> printing flyers and getting people ready ahead of time and prepping the crowds and all that stuff. What's that? I bet that's how I knew Franklin. Mm, could be. When was he born again? What year? Se- it was But what do we think about this? I mean, when we think about this guy who was flamboyant, who was dramatic, who was known for acting and time in the theater, and he applied this to sermons, right? Is, is, is that what it is? Is that all it is to preach a good sermon, that you have to be dramatic and theatrical? or Can the Holy Spirit use that at all? Is that a bad thing to be theatric and theatrical? I think it's the 21st century whole discussion where... You're, if you're battling for doing something with great glory, for the glory of God, yeah, and then somewhere on the other end of it is that you can do your art so well that it can be its own attraction. Right. So I guess somewhere in the middle is where Paul, Paul has this great verse where he was like, even if the message of the gospel isn't presented in, in the perfection of the way that it should be perfected, he was like, don't stop it. Because at least it's getting out there. What, what, where, 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 what's uh, yeah, one of the? the uh, whether is that the, whether by false motives or true, Christ is preached yeah, in this. Exactly. Side, so, exactly. It's one of those things where um, 
you know, and some of the people I know that are amazing Christians got saved by the most bizarre yeah. means. It's kind of where Paul was saying, it was like, it just takes takes a small seed for God to be able to plant the right heart, you know, with the right time yeah. and the spirit. You, you, we kind of discredit the import of the spirit in that whole conversion process. Right. But I think it's something to be said that the guy was right and he understood that if he did his art well to the glory of God, yeah. people are attracted to both of those things. There's something about the Imago Dei and the artist that comes yeah. out. It's like the little nugget of glory that God put inside of you from him, yep. people are attracted to those glories. Yep. Um, but I also think there's a scary factor like Hillsong and Bethel where you can wrap yourself up in the glory so much people get drawn to the glory and miss right. the substance. Right. So I think we need to be careful uh, not stereotype preachers mm. uh, and, and judge their... Um, yeah, there's different personalities. Yeah. You know, yeah. look at the disciples, right? Look, look at all the different personalities. So, none of them preached the same, right? But they preached all preached the gospel. Yeah, yeah. I, it, we're right to be suspicious, right? In some ways, of an overly dramatic, I think, or a uh, overly theatric approach. Um, but in the end, what is being communicated, right? I mean. The other side of the equation wouldn't be good either. If I just sat up there on a Sunday morning and literally read my manuscript with my face and my page and never changed the inflection of my voice or read in a monotone or something, is that doing justice to the gospel and the glory of God and the greatest message ever told? No. So that's a note or next week's tuba worship set. Yes. Yeah, we'll talk about that offline. So I think it's balance, right? In all things, the answer is not in the extreme. It's not just, you know, well, I don't want to have any sort of uh, passion or I, I, I don't certainly want to have just all passion and no substance. Right? So there definitely is a balance. And the Holy Spirit can use both and the Holy Spirit's gifted different people in different ways and different dynamics, right? Um, but you're also dealing with something as he was fighting back and saying, you're dealing with something real, and something supernatural to begin with. So why would you not give that everything you have in that sense? Because the conversion itself is supernatural. We know that true. So, Yeah, kind of on that line, I've always wondered the story that Christ gave about the sower. He didn't just choose to put the seeds only in the good soil. Yeah. He sowed everywhere. So... Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Doing it's like it, the general call we were talking about on Sunday. Exactly. Just throw doing it far it, and wide. Doing it to the best you can for the glory of God to whatever capacity you've got for the glory. Are there people who are going to be drawn to it for their own reasons? Always. Mm -hmm. Because it always lands on the rocks and it lands in the cracks and it lands yeah. everywhere. But I think the greater power is not is not in how well you glorify. The greater power is in the power of the Spirit in the right heart yeah. at the right time. Amen. And it might not even be the right time, right? It might not even be. Maybe that's just one time you heard the gospel and a little seed was planted in your soul, but then you're going to, however the Lord is going to bring you to himself, right? he's going to continue to. What he did kind of um, start was the Great Awakening. And I just wanted to spend a moment on the, the first Great Awakening because we pretty much identify that as the start of evangelicalism. 
It was a revivalist start store of um, revivalist style of preaching and an emphasis again on personal conversion. So that's totally different than what was going on at the time, right? There were again guys in robes and wigs reading their manuscript in a monotone voice. There was nothing about the dynamics, there was nothing about passion, and there was certainly nothing about a personal conversion to Jesus Christ. And so in comes Whitfield, and then that's what he's doing. So this ignited in America. And really, when you think about it, we had the colonies that are just starting to form, right? The established churches, the Congregationalists, the Episcopals, they opposed the Great Awakening. They said it was all emotion and no substance. It was a religion of the heart. And they really had no interest in going out and preaching to those new colonies. Like, I'm not going out there. Forget it. So that left a wide open mission field. And so who did it? The Methodists, the people like uh, George Whitfield, that gave birth to the Methodist circuit rider, who would then go around the colonies and preach the gospel, do these camp meetings and revival meetings where people would hear the gospel being preached. This was not happening at all. So this was the birth, really, of American evangelicalism that we see. And so, again, Whitfield, a wildly popular and captivating speaker, he used marketing techniques, he focused on conversion, but did he focus too much, maybe, on emotion? There's one book that, if you have not read a good, like, apologetic book, this book, Total Truth by Nancy Piercy, I love this book. But she does a little mini history of evangelicalism. And one chapter is just so good. It's called How We Lost Our Mind, <laughs> meaning how the, sh the, the scales tipped to just empty emotionalism and drama. And it started right here. Yeah. Like you think of Bethel and Hillsong, and yes, we, we, we should call attention to Bethel and Hillsong. And you think like, wow, that must have started in the 80s and 90s. No, it started in the 1800s on the frontier when the circuit riders were going around hyping people up in these revival meetings and focusing on um, not so much doctrine, but focusing on emotion and personal conversion and all of that stuff. So, Piercy stresses the stage was set for our modern evangelical pop culture. It said the focus was on emotional response, the celebrity-style preacher, the engineered publicity, the individual detached from the local church, right? So you're out on the range, you're in you know, the frontier there, and you're having a spiritual experience and not necessarily connected to a local church. All of that, you see, starts the seedbed for what we see in America evangelicalism today. It laid the groundwork also for the anti-intellectualism that will hurt the American church and still continues to hurt the American church. Right. Why? Because it's about... Jesus is my boyfriend songs and, you know, emotions and lights and all that stuff. So So I grew up in the South, but that is still alive and well. Yeah. It is, every church in my county has a revival at least two times a year. And I 100%, that was actually one of the reasons why I wanted to come up north was because it felt like every church was trying to do the show yeah. and, and trying to get all the emotion and stuff into it. Um, but it's just odd to me. Like, I haven't found a church up here yet that has that same movement and stuff into it. But what ended up happening in the South was because they were culturally not as strong in areas of other arts and other intellectual stuff that right. other 
areas culturally did have, right. the church became the cultural hub. And it became the place where you have your barn dances, it became the place where you have your shindigs and hootenannies. I'm speaking Southern. If you need to interpret, you can do it. Speaking no. tongues. Exactly. It, it became, Interpreter. Interpreter. It became the hub of all social events. And somewhere in that transition, because it became the new cultural hub and the entertainment hub, it literally did just suck the intellectual doctrine and orthodoxy out of it. And yeah. we got to a point to where um, they, they started associating their spirituality with their emotions, yeah. which is why you have to revive it up every year. Yep. You know, if you don't get your hype up. <laughs> so why is that a problem? Why, why, are, why is it a problem that our spirituality would be because grounded on our, on our emotions? Because emotions don't last. They're made to be temporal. Yeah. Austin just amen what you said. He's listening on the live stream. I said that He's for you, Austin. They have cowboy church down there, though. That's pretty cool. They have cowboy church. They have ranch church, fireman oh, yes, church. Oh, you get baptized in a trough. I'm not joking. <laughs> Any kind of church you would want, they have. Snakes. Snake church. Oh, yeah. Long ending of Mark. Yeah, not good. But do we still see that? I mean, we see it here. Do we see it as much in the north? Not no, nothing like we what see, I see it in the south. We see apostate church. Yep. We don't see as much of the. There are charismatic tent churches up here. Yeah. But there are fewer than there are in the south. What's besides feelings <clears throat> change, which they do? What is the danger of an emotionally grounded faith? Because our mm -hmm. heart is deceitful and wicked. Wow. Yes. I'm just dropping Jeremiah seventeen nine all over the place tonight. Exactly. Yeah. Our heart is deceitful and wicked, so our heart wants what we our heart thinks it wants, yeah. more emotion. And does emotion always come? And so if our faith is based on emotion and emotion doesn't always come, then what happens stable. to our faith? Yeah, yeah. it's stable. Exactly. Yeah. There's a second thing that happened in that too that ended up being a horrible thing for the churches, and that is that because it became an entertainment mentality and yeah. a cultural yeah. mentality, it became less and less about your faith that people became personalities off of it. Yep. So people started having this great homage and pedestal relationship with pastors, yep. forgetting that it was the God that was saving their heart and changing them and converting yep. them. And this loyalty and following mentality to people yep. became a, like a big problem. People, but then also the individuals too, right? You, the consumeristic mentality is, is seated in that for sure, right? You ever talk to somebody and say, how was church? Well, I didn't really get much out of it. Like, yeah. I remember my dad was I'm not was sure that's why we go to church. <laughs> yeah. Well, my, my, you'll hear them call it by the pastor's church. So, you know, Bob's church. Yeah. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, the, the pastor's, everything's about the pastor. It's not necessarily about yeah, the, the whole celebrity system. Exactly. Culture. Yeah. Well, we were designed to worship, so we'll attach ourselves and the problem you have yeah. when your fellowship is predicated on emotions is that emotions can be manipulated. Mm -hmm. Emotions can be taken advantage of. Absolutely. Repurposed. Give so to my ministry way. today. No, sorry. <laughs> best life now. So exactly. yeah, that's that's a big problem. Yeah. When the, the word isn't paramount <coughs> in the church, then the personality becomes paramount in the church. Right. And when that happens, it's bad news. And then you go over the line in in trying to outdo what you're doing in production and show and everything else, and then soon you're like, why are we doing this? 
Oh, that's alive and well. In the one little town I grew up in, it's almost like a competition every Sunday to see who can get the most people because it's just yeah. who's worse. You know, well, I went to this church and they had best worship. Well, this church has <laughs> someone, you know, who can do a tutu in service you know, for their worship service. It's ridiculous. Yeah, flags. Exactly. Definitely got to have flags. A wise man once said, what you win them with, you win them too. Right? So if people are going to go to church to be entertained, exactly. they're going to expect to be entertained every single Sunday. Right? We went to a church where the pastor did the worm on stage. You keep telling me that story, and it's still shocking every time you tell me that story. It was there. It happened. And the South? Oh, that Didn't he have like a giant belly in the South? Or yep. Just yeah. And he still did the worm. <laughs> Okay. All right. Moving on. He did a lot of good, though. He did care for the orphans. Uh, one of the biographers called this the second of his twofold task of his life, preaching and caring for orphans. He raised awareness. He raised money. He built orphanages himself. He had uh, a wholesome atmosphere. He had strong discipline. Of course, a strong Calvinist influence. Uh, many of the homes were just for boys and that sort of thing. So that was definitely on his heart. And you see that that's connected then with his theology. right? Why would we care about orphans? Yeah, obedience, absolutely. One of those things, James 1.27, right? Care for orphans. Why else would we care about orphans? Because I think in the righteousness of God, he knows who the oppressed and who the unempowered are, and he loves them. Yeah. The widows and the orphans in that time were the most unempowered. Yeah. Un, yeah, the they were the real oppressed in the time. Yeah. And he. I mean, think about that. There were no orphanages. Like, he's <laughs> starting them in the colonies because they're just kids that are abandoned mm -hmm. and discarded, and people don't really care. Right? Like Haiti. Yeah, like Haiti. Right? And we see that, of course, in the example of Jesus and the way that he treated children and the oppressed and the marginalized. Right? What about the image of God in every single person, including children? So he recognized that as well. However, he was not perfect. He was, and if you dig into him just a little bit, you will find one of the biggest um, accusations against him was that he was quite pro-slavery. He was a plantation owner. He was a slaveholder. He defended the practice of owning slaves. Now, this is before... Civil War, right? This is just establishing um, what was going on. Remember we talked about um, William Wilberforce, right? And John Newton and everything a couple weeks ago. That was happening in England, so it was being outlawed there. And so when the colonies started here, originally they started without slaves. Slavery was outlawed in Georgia in 1735. And unfortunately, it was men like George Whitfield that campaigned to legalize slavery in the United States. But he came, up, he came about it from a kind of an economic way. He said that there's no way that we're going to be able to run these plantations without slaves. It's just, it's just impossible. It's just built into the economics of what we're doing. And he also saw it as a way to maintain the orphanages. <clears throat> He's saying, had slaves been allowed to live in Georgia, I would have had sufficient support to do a great many more orphans good without expending above half the sum that have been laid out. So he's like, I'm trying to raise money here for these orphanages, and I need slaves to help me run these orphanages because I don't have to pay them that much. And think of how many more orphans I could bring in if we were only allowed to have slaves 
in these colonies. Well, it was purely pragmatic. It was very pragmatic, very pragmatic. So he didn't theologically or biblically try to defend. I think he did. There's definitely some evidence that he definitely tried to shoehorn in some theology into saying that. But as we'll see in a moment, it wasn't the typical difference in the races. It was it was a, a way of you know we saw it in the Bible. It was there, so why wouldn't it be here? Kind of yeah. thing. Well, it depends how he how he treated his slaves too, though. Yeah. I mean, um, he actually treated them very well because in biblical times. Uh, they were part of the family. Yes. Yeah, so he definitely kind of imported that mindset that um, they work for me. I'm paying them a lot less. They're called slaves. But so he definitely was pro-slavery and definitely used that kind of Old Testament model to apply uh, that to what he was doing. But he was very different in how he treated the slaves. He was the first to preach the gospel to the slaves because he said they have souls. And he would fight back, and he would say, they are not subhuman. They are our fellow brothers and sisters, and we need to preach them. They need to be saved just like we need to be saved. So he was the first one, and he would get tons of flack for doing that because people were like, why are you bothering to try to save the savages? It doesn't make any sense, right? He also spoke out against the harsh treatment of slaves, and he would come at people for treating their slaves harshly. But again, he stopped short of saying that slavery was sinful or immoral. And again, he maintained that they were not subhuman, but they had souls like everybody else. So it was very, very pragmatic in that approach. Side note, cancel culture did reach George Whitfield, and they uh, removed a statue of him at the University of Pennsylvania in 2020, just a couple of years ago. And they removed the statue. They say, well, we found out he was pro-slavery, so we took his statue away. But Bob hit it on the head. It's a pragmatic approach. And so what's, what's the problem with a pragmatic approach? Everybody know what pragmatism means? It means the end justifies the means. Right? You can see that clearly. He's just like, we can't run our plantations. I can't even run my orphanage without slaves. But does that make slavery good? Right? That, that was his argument. So he was nice to the slaves, and so he treated them well, and so he preached the gospel to them, but still, does that mean it was okay to have slaves? Well, it's kind of like, I was just thinking about today, even with like illegal immigrant workers. Yeah. You know? Right in Pine Island, I'm sure. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. Onion fields, you know, it's the same. Yeah. Not to say, I mean, that they, I don't know how they're treated. I really don't know. Yeah. You know? But it is the question of pragmatism. Like, is there, is it ever, does it ever change the morality of something? Does it ever change the rightness and wrongness of something because it turns out good in the end? It's important to understand the context culturally, not advocating for slavery by any means, but yeah. it was culturally accepted. It was an institution that was legal for the most part. And maybe one way of looking at it is he tried to make the best out of that sinful institution. I don't know why you didn't denounce it. It's an interesting dichotomy. Yeah. But. Well, you got to, again, look at the context, right? So, what I mean, let, let's talk about it biblically. Does the Bible denounce slavery in any way, shape, or form? Yes. Trick question. It does not. So, 
It lays out rules for indentured servitude. I don't know, not slave a little while ago. Yeah, yeah. 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 slave catchers. Yes, that's what we're talking about here. Look at the nature of American chattel slavery, right? So chattel slavery means you would own someone, right, as a piece of property, right? And how did the African Americans get to America? They were kidnapped against their will. They were man-stolen, right, and brought to this country, right? That's completely different than the Old Testament model. Right, and, and the big thing to remember about the Old Testament model is it was not racial. Here in America, it was completely racial. So it was like, we're going to go to Africa, we're going to get some Africans, and they're going to bring them here against their will, and they're going to be our property. And that's, that's clearly uh, denounced in Scripture. Paul says it as a, uh, as a man-stealer. I can't remember. It's in, it's in 1 Timothy somewhere. Yeah, it's in 1 Timothy 1. We know the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid out for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, the ungodly and the sinners, the unholy and the profane, those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers, sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality. Oh, it's never mentioned in the New Testament. Sorry, it is. And here we go. Enslavers. Right? Those who literally steal, kidnap another man and enslave them against their will. So the Bible is actually anti-slavery as America practiced slavery and chattel slavery. And so, I'm sorry, Mr. Whitfield, <laughs> the ends do not justify the means. And so we've got to call it what it is. I know I can see your arguments. I get it. I mm -hmm. totally get it. But still, you can't just say, oh, well, you know, it's, it's running our economy. Therefore, it's okay. No, that's a pragmatic argument, and that doesn't work when you're talking about morality. I was going to say, one of the things that I think it was Spurgeon who brought this up when he was working on the abolition in England, he said, um, what makes the Christian faith so remarkable against other religions is that you have the book of Philemon, in which it elevates the individual agency that God made yeah. above the cultural norm of the time. Yeah. That was one of the things that he said. He was like, our Bible has Philemon in there for a purpose. Yeah. Like, so that we understand the importance of God's design yeah. and the agency of things. Yeah. So it's hard to be able to preach a message off of Philemon and then go home to your slaves. It's just awkward. There you go. What do we see in the news today with Roe versus Wade? Mm -hmm. That is total pragmatism. Right? Mm -hmm. But well, what do we want? We want all these babies that nobody can afford being born, we can't have that. Take care of all the kids. It's going to take care of all the orphans, right? I didn't want a child, so therefore, you know, because of my career, because of this, because of whatever, because I don't have the money, because I don't have this, this is the better thing to do, right? Okay. Things are either right all the time or wrong. Like the Bible clearly says things are right and wrong, sinful, moral, immoral, just like Paul was talking about, and pragmatism can't influence that, the usefulness of it. Go ahead, Frank, sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. Look at Yellen. Yelling today and yesterday uh, that, that that it's tied to economic uh, uh, abortion. Yeah, uh, it's it it's tied to economics. Yeah. Sure, sure. So uh, <clears throat> yeah, you know. It, yeah, we got to remember that. Look at um, again homosexuality, right? Clearly condemned in the scriptures, no question. We just read it in the New Testament in Paul, right? But do we see churches caving into that now? Mm 
why are they caving into it? Because, oh, we can reach more people, or we might be more accepted by the community, or money, right? Or whatever, right? Again, so we're going to throw out something that's completely sinful in, in the Bible in order that it'll justify the end. So the means justifies the ends, and that, that can't happen. So it's a, it's a direct clash of a Christian worldview that we're up against here. And again, back in late 1700s, it was happening. And Whitfield, for all the good that he did, right? And when we want to run across these guys, these giants of the faith, we've got to be honest with ourselves and call what they did, if it was sinful, sinful. And learn from it as well. So question. Yeah. Can a uh, Christian businessman employ illegal immigrants? I don't know. What, is, what does the group think? Well, <laughs> I don't want to answer it first. I, mean, I think that's, I mean, that's a hot topic, question, but I mean, no. it's... Uh... So it's, it's against the law. It's against the, the law of the land. <laughs> but then people are supposed to sojourn and we're supposed to accept sojourners. So... But our government doesn't, our government doesn't. follow the law of the land. Oh, but two two wrongs make a right. Yeah, no, no. no. <laughs> We're bringing politics and, and theology together. Here. What would you say, Ronald? But I have a question. Oh, I thought you were going to answer, Frank. No. Oh, dang um, it. <laughs> I'm in no way making an argument for slavery, but is it wrong to enslave gingers? They don't have souls. Oh. All right, Ron, so. out. Right. <laughs> yeah, you got two Steve. gingers here. <laughs> Kind of <laughs> but is it right an actual for a Christian businessman? Yes, Frank, thank you for, for continuing on to your yeah, point. I mean, it's just, I've been asked that. Yeah. To employ an I'd illegal animal. I'd like to know how they're getting paid. Yeah. Cash? Yeah. Because if they're not legal, they don't have a federal ID number. Um, and then we can't somebody's going to preach on could, render to Caesar with a Caesar this, this Sunday. Say, I mean, that, they're not put them on the payroll. Well, we just had that at Hamburg School. She's a yeah. But anyhow, yeah. But, yeah, uh, but we are called to honor the government, to follow the rules, unless they're calling us into sin. Right? But I would say no. I would say a Christian businessman could not morally employ. Well, that's one of those rubber band things, you know what I mean? Yeah. But, but It's not talking about, you know, having somebody over your house and mowing the grass when you're throwing 30 bucks. No. You know, you're working for your company. That, I, I like to know how they're getting paid. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, what? they're basically cheating the government out of taxes. Yeah. Right? And that's, of course, a financial incentive. Because I could pay somebody $100 a day and I'm done. You know, and they could work 12 hours. So the employer is also cheating the government. Sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's where the rubber meets the road. Yeah, exactly. For, for, yeah. For, He's for, committing a crime. Exactly. Is yeah, because if you're employing someone... For Christian ethics. 40 exactly. hours yes. a week... Under the books, you don't have to pay them benefits. You don't have to pay them anything. You just hand them cash at the end of the week. Mm -hmm. And it's... Yeah, they don't have to contribute to Social Security, yeah. Workman's Comp, all yeah. these things that employers would have to for yeah. a legal citizen. That's a real thing, though. I, I, I've talked to Christian construction workers and guys who own their own companies. It's just like, I could, I could pick up five guys and pay them next to nothing, and they'll work all day, and I don't have to worry about anything. I and get show, it, but... And they show up. They do yeah. good work. Mm -hmm. They work better than Americans. Oh, they do. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, they do. But, but that, it's rampant today. I mean, it, we as Christians have to face stuff like that. Yep. Yeah. I don't know if you're allowed to ask their legal status or not, though. 
Well, you have well, to sign them up. You have to, you have have to fill out a W-4 form. You have to show proof when you get hired. Social Security. You have to. Or you can't go on payroll. No, you can't. Yeah. Ronald, you, you can definitely is this a serious thing or is this about mm -hmm. a ginger again? No, I'm, I'm done with gingers. <laughs> okay, good. Um, on this topic, I cut your grass. You didn't pay me anything. So, is that indentured servitude? Or? That, that was, was that was that was release of your bondage. That was Old Testament voluntary slavery. That's called grace. Yeah, and grace. <laughs> not for not for his yard or whatever. Then Richard came along and he had to But but the, those are the stuff that meets the road. Yeah, yeah. where the road meets the road. For yeah, I think one of the big things, of course, that you know, uh, Whitfield teaches us about the beauty of preaching, the beauty of God's word, the passion that needs to go along with that, the conversion, the real the real aspect that, yes, there does need to be an actual conversion. There needs to be an understanding of the gospel. The Holy Spirit needs to open your eyes. All that stuff's wonderful. And his passion for evangelism was, was unparalleled. But we've also got to look at, at pragmatism square in the face and just say that it, it can't work from a Christian ethical perspective and a Christian worldview. So yeah. I was going to give him a break, but then um, with his orphanage, <laughs> yeah. he, um, his preaching raised the funds for it. And the orphanage had a group of trustees, and he would not give accounting to the trustees. Yeah. It was Whoa. his money. Whoa. Could, you know, so, so I was going to give him a break until I read that. And then he had a problem with the Moravians, <laughs> and he contracted for them to build an orphanage. And so he was then, using hired labor. Yeah, and then something went south there. Uh, you know, he didn't like their their um, beliefs. Their theology, yeah. Their theology. And, yep. uh, and he him. <laughs> he didn't believe in prevailing, he, prevailing wage. He yeah. fired them, but they bought the building. And it's a Moravian building to this day. Called the Whitfield House. Getting back yeah. briefly to the slavery thing, whether or not, whether or not, Many occasions where, during the course of battles with the nation of Israel fighting its many enemies, yep. they took slaves back yes. and forth. Yep. They were. That was the empirical norm for centuries. Yeah. Yeah. It's going on right now in Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. Which, which again is not condoned in Scripture. It's managed in Scripture, and that's another way that God says you're going to be different than the nations around you. You know, when you have a sojourner, when you have a slave, this is how you're going to treat them, right? So God's not saying that's okay either. Not only that, he put time limits on how long you could have a slave. Yeah. Because you had the year of Jubilee, and then you had here every seven years. Yeah. It, it's kind of like polygamy. Yeah, but that's kind of like temporary slavery. No. It, it is. So it's in the sense that it was practiced, and God's not condoning it. He's just saying this is, you know, this is, wasn't my design. Well, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I thought I re remember reading in somewhere in De Deuteronomy where God allowed after the nation of Israel defeated a particular country or nation at the time, and he allowed them to take slaves. Yes, in fact, in Deuteronomy, one of the laws that it has is how they would do that and could do that. But yeah. at that point in time, empirically, if what all the wars, any nation who conquered another nation, the populace of the old citizenship became the property of right. the new citizens. And again, I think that you will find that passage is management, not right. permission. And here's the great thing that in, in the Lord's model, no well, other empire or system. That seems to be a subtle distinction. Well, he's not condoning it. 
Right. He's not saying, and he totally not saying thus saying the Lord, this is okay. Again, just like polygamy, he's not saying, it's, I'm not okay with it, right. but I know it's going on, and here's how you're going to deal with that so that you're different than other people. And I kind of put that in the same pot of Christian ethics that I put the fact that Jacob had two wives and Solomon had 300, and that there isn't a Bible verse that says... And 700 concubines. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I feel like there's this, this thing where the Lord lets humanity do its sway of culture just so we can see what our humanity is capable of doing, but which is why it's really important to have a, a line between our personal faith and our faith and our culture. Our faith moves into how we move in culture, but to have our culture do the opposite and, and define our faith gets scary because yeah. God lets this, he lets humanity show what humanity can do. But your faith is that solid rock. Yeah. It's, it's the part that is completely 100% solid, no matter what the wave and ebb and flow of this part does, as it's defining its ethics. But when we move from the Old Covenant into the New Covenant, mm -hmm. it was very, very specific. One man, one woman. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Correct. So, yeah. so yeah, there, was... there may be a second reason why Paul said that. And that was because there was still lingering Jewish custom at the time to have multiple wives. But the Jews were owned by the Romans who had a legal system who said only one. So there was actually ongoing disputes within the land because the Jews were secretly trying to, to have more than one. So part of the reason why he secretly may have said that. Secretly having more than one wife. Yes. Part of the reason why he may have said that was to squish some of the cultural things. Now what has happened is after, what are we out, 2,000 years now of people finding a good goodness in a single monogamous relationship. Culture swung the other way, and now this is where we are. But you can still go to Lebanon and other countries, and you can still find polygamy is there. And there's Christians who have one of the two wives in some countries. So how do you, you know, how do you? Uh, Christian ethics. Yes. I love it so. That's a whole other job. It is. Wow. All right, friends. Good discussion. Let me pray for us. <laughs> Father, thank you for uh, these topics, Lord, that stimulate us to think deeply on these things. Help us to know your word well, and most of all, to know your character uh, even better, Lord. We thank you for men like George Whit Whitfield, and we know like us, um, he was a sinner in, in several areas. And pray that, Lord, we would be able to separate those out in our minds well, but for our own hearts, Lord, I pray that we would not drift towards pragmatism, towards the diluting of your word, uh, towards things that make the church out to be something that is attractional. Instead, may it be focused on Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen again. We pray it in his name. Amen. Amen. Bye, Austin. Bye, Austin. Bye, Noel. <laughs> <laughs>